0: Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right, so we are going to try to get two churches done tonight. Thyatira. Last week was Pergamum. We got some weird names. Thyatira. Sardis is a little easier to say, so we're going to look at Thyatira and Sardis tonight. So let's pick up in Revelation chapter two, verses eighteen through twenty-nine. And if you just notice something about Thyatira, just look at your just look in your Bible at the at the at, at the um, printing. What what looks like it's the longest church, as far as the space devoted to it. Thyatira. Thyatira, It's pretty long, right? Okay. Well, let's read Thyatira. Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. And all the churches will know that I am He who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over nations." He will rule them with a the rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right. If you remember, there are seven aspects to each of these letters to the seven churches. Each of these aspects go back to an aspect, I'm using the word aspect a lot, go back to what Christ appeared to John back in chapter 1. Okay, also it relates to uh, the city and what's going on in the city, some specific things. So Thyatira, um, the introductory address to the church in Thyatira. What does history teach us about Thyatira? It was the least significant city in Asia Minor. It wasn't um, a strong seat of emperor worship like Pergamum. It wasn't like Smyrna where there were a bunch of hostile Jews. Here's the one thing you need to know about Thyatira. It was a union town controlled by trade guilds. Remember we talked a little bit about the trade guilds last week and the trade guild festivals? So this is a blue-collar town. The trade guilds, the unions were probably more organized than in any other ancient city. And there were two very specific trades: metalworking, bronze, bronze and metalworking, and the dyeing of fabrics. Okay? The dyeing of fabrics and metalworking. Now do you guys remember, you probably don't, the book back in the book of Acts, remember Lydia? She was from Thyatira. What is it? What do we know about Lydia? She was a seller of purple clothing. Okay, so Thyatira had a big um, dyeing of fabric type um, trade as well. And each trade, each occupation, had its own pagan god, Greek or Roman god. Okay, so the patron god of Thyatira was the sun god. Apollos. Now, if you know anything about Greek mythology, who was Apollos? He was the son of Zeus. He's the sun god, he's the bright, shining god. Okay? So, Apollos is the patron pagan god to Thyatira. It's a city known for their trade guilds, especially metalworking. Okay? So, the second part of the letter the aspect of Christ's appearance to John how does john or how does jesus reveal himself <coughs> excuse me to the to the church in thyatira to the words the words of the son of god the son of god we'll discuss this in detail a little bit later but to suffice it to say that caesar the roman emperor was called the son of god Also, since Apollos was the official pagan god of the city, he was also known as the Sun God or the Son of God, the Son of Zeus. So what does Jesus come along and say? Caesar's not the son of God, Apollos is not the son of God. I am the true son of God. And how does he come? There in verse 18, he has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. This takes us back to chapter one. when We looked at those aspects of Jesus. Okay. So the flaming eyes, the brilliance of Jesus is basically to stand over and against Apollos. But more importantly, what did the flaming eyes of Jesus represent? The fact that he can see all things. He's omniscient. He knows everything that's going on. You can't escape the eyes of Jesus, okay? Also, what did I say was the chief metalworking? What was the chief trade guild in Thyatira? Bronze making, okay? His feet are like burnished bronze, okay? The feet like burnished bronze is a reference to the power of Christ to tread on his enemies in judgment, Okay, that's what it really means. You know, Jesus treads over his enemies. But like I said, bronze and metalworking was one of the chief industries of Thyatira. And so again, Christ uses something familiar from their culture and elevates himself above it to show his absolute sovereignty. Okay, so it's very, very specific that Jesus describes himself to Thyatira as the son of God, as opposed to Apollos, as the one with flaming Eyes of fire and feet of burnished bronze in a city that's major manufacturer was was bronze. Okay? Now, here's the big question about Thyatira. It's a question we all struggle with. Okay? How far can you go as a Christian in adopting the cultural standards around you and still be faithful to Christ? Okay. Do we live in a culture that it's difficult to be a Christian in? Yes. So the big question is how much am I going to compromise? Okay? So what is the spiritual evaluation? So this is the third part of the letter. Jesus always comes and says, "I know something about you." What's the the, the spiritual evaluation? Verse 19, "I know your works, your love, your faith, your servants, your patient endurance, that your latter works exceed the first. Okay? They're they're doing pretty good, aren't they? Jesus says, listen, you guys are working hard. You're loving each other. You're being patient. You have love. Now, what was the problem in Ephesus? You've lost that love and feeling, and it's gone, gone, gone. Whoa, Whoa. So Ephesus had lost their love. Ephesus was good at theology, They were good at sniffing out false prophets, but they'd lost their love. It's the exact opposite here. In Thyatira, they had great love, but they had really bad theology. Okay? They had great heat. They were passionate about Jesus. Okay, look, Jesus says, listen, um, your latter works exceed your first. You guys have you have great zeal, you got great passion, you got great love, but you lack light. You do not have solid doctrinal convictions and teachings. There's some problems going on in the church in the area of compromise. So what are the words of rebuke and correction that Jesus has to this church? What's their sin? Look at verse 20. I have this against you. You're, 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 you've got, you guys are loving each other. You guys are, you know, you're, you're suffering well, but you got, some, you got a problem. You have this woman... Jezebel and notice what the Bible says there what does your Bible say in verse 20 you tolerate you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet does anybody else have a different word besides tolerate you allow okay so let's talk about this word tolerance tolerance that's a big word in our culture today right We need to be tolerant. What does tolerant mean? Just accept whatever happens. There's no right. There's no wrong. You you just need to accept it. Be tolerant of other people's opinions, tolerant of other people's views. There's no absolute truth. There's moral relativism. All truths are equal, so we need to tolerate everything. Jesus is telling them not to be tolerant, okay? He's saying you tolerate, you allow, you're allowing this woman now, we don't know if her real name was Jezebel. It's probably a metaphor. Now, what do you know about Jezebel? What do you know from your Old Testament about Jezebel? Who was Jezebel? She was a domineering woman with a spineless, cowardly husband Ahab, the king of Israel. Okay. Do you guys remember the story in the Old Testament? Okay, so Elijah was the prophet. And if you remember what happened, was she was seducing Israel to follow false gods. And her husband was pretty much a wimp. And um, you remember Elijah on Mount Carmel, the prophets of Baal and fire came down and everything. She chases after him. Elijah has to run and hide for his life. Um, You can find out just a summary statement of Jezebel in the Old Testament from 2 Kings 9.22. And when Joram saw Jehu, he said, Is it peace, Jehu? He answered, What peace can there be as long as the whorings and the sorceries of your mother Jezebel are so many? Okay? There's no peace in Israel because your mom, she's prostituting, not necessarily herself, but she is seducing the Israelites into sorcery, into false teaching, into sexual immorality. So, Jezebel was known for her cruelty, her sorcery, her immorality, okay? Now, in Thyatira, that's the Old Testament Jezebel, okay? The actual, literal Old Testament Jezebel, the wife of Ahab the king. I don't necessarily think this woman's name is Jezebel per se. We don't know what her name was, but she's the personification of Jezebel. She is a female false prophet in the church, in Thyatira, we do not know the identity, what her name is, of this false prophetess, but she's taken on the characteristics of Jezebel from the Old Testament. Now, I talked about that word tolerate, tolerance. Interestingly, in the Greek language, the word for tolerate means to set her free to have control, to let her loose. In other words, she was not under the control of of the elders or the pastoral leadership, she was given free reign in the church to do whatever she wanted. And what's she doing? Look at verse 19. This woman Jezebel calls herself a prophetess. She's teaching and seducing my servants to do two things. What? Practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now notice, interestingly, that she, she calls herself a prophetess she's self-appointed. Be very careful of somebody who's a self-appointed prophet or prophetess. Um, usually that means that they have no accountability or no authority. they're just going to come and do whatever they want. okay? So her false teaching was sexual immorality, food, Sacrifice to idols. Now, these were the same two issues we saw in Pergamum last week. Remember? Pergamum struggled with these two issues. Now, you may we easily understand sexual immorality, but what's the big deal with food sacrifice to idols? Okay? This is what was going on at those trade guilds. Remember the trade guilds? What did you have to do? If you were a member of the Bronze Working Trade Guild, what would you have to do? You had to go to the Trade Guild Festival. What happened at the Trade Guild Festival? You got drunk and engaged in an orgy. And if you didn't do that, you may lose your job. So this is what's happening. She's basically coming along to the people in the church and she is seducing them. Seducing means to lead astray. She's a wolf in sheep's clothing. Now, we don't know exactly what she's saying, but she's probably saying something like this. I've got a word from the Lord. God spoke to me. And here's what he told me because I'm a prophetess. You know that you all go to these trade guild festivals. And I know it's probably uncomfortable as a Christian to be around all of that immorality. And I understand that, but I have a word from the Lord. God has told me it's okay for you to engage if you don't do it all the time. Don't have sex every time, maybe every other time. Don't get drunk every time, every other time. But you can't question what I'm saying because I'm a prophetess and I speak for God. What's a prophetess do? They act like they speak for God. But she's seducing them. She's leading them astray. And what's the church doing? The church is tolerating her. The church is giving her free reign. Now, in the Old Testament, Ahab. Ahab was a wimpy husband who gave Jezebel free reign. So there's a metaphor going on here. There's a personification. In essence, the church in Thyatira had become like Ahab, a weak, spineless, capitulating wimp who succumbs to the dominance and seduction of his wife. In other words, the church didn't put a stop to it. The elders, the pastors, the leaders did not pull Jezebel, this woman aside and say, stop it. We're going to exercise church discipline. You're not welcome here. We don't care if you have a word from the Lord. If it violates scripture, it's not from the Lord. Okay. By the way, if some this is a side note. It's not in your notes, but it's very, very important. If somebody comes along and says, I have a word from God, or God told me, or this is what God spoke to me, and what they say is in clear violation of the Bible, did God speak to them? Will the Holy Spirit ever speak in violation to the written word? So what's the Bible say? Do not commit sexual immorality, right? We all know that. That's what the written word says. So if somebody comes along and says, you know what? I've got a word from the Lord. It's okay. What do you realize? It's not okay. okay. Here's what's happening right now, guys. It's very, very important that you understand this. There are a lot of evangelical Christians who are basically saying, we've gotten the Bible wrong on the issue of homosexuality. That we've been wrong all these years. And there's people like Jen Hatmaker and others that God spoke to them and God spoke to their heart and told them it's okay. Anything that's in clear violation of God's written word is not from God regardless of what they say, whatever prophet, whatever title they have, whatever they say, if it's in direct contradiction to God's word, if even if I say it. Remember what Paul said in Galatians? Let's just turn there real quick. We preached this a couple months ago when we first started the book of Galatians, but it's important to remember again. So remember what Paul said in Galatians. As we, we're studying this on Sunday mornings. In Galatians 1.8, what does Paul say in Galatians 1.8? But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, I'll say it again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Paul says, if I'm coming to you and preaching something different, then I need to be accursed. Okay? Now, here's the real issue. Here's the real issue. It came down to a matter of money. That's really what the bottom line is. Because think about this for a moment. If you are a Christian in Thyatira, and your job and your livelihood depends upon going to the trade guilds, and yet what happens at the trade guild festival is immoral, and you don't participate, what are you going to lose? Your job. And that's going to affect your paycheck. So the question that these people were dealing with is, am I willing to sacrifice financially for not indulging in sin and idolatry or will I make compromises that are sinful in order to be part of the system? Okay. What Jezebel or this woman was saying is, let's not worry about what the Bible says about morality let's just try to compromise with the culture because we know it's hard living in Thyatira and God understands. But what does Jesus say to her? Verse 21, Jesus gives her time to do what? Repent. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Okay. There are times in the Bible where God acts in immediate judgment. Remember Ananias and Sapphira? They lied. They fell down dead. Remember Uzzah when the Ark of the Covenant was falling and he touched it? He fell dead. Jesus does not come and immediately judge her. What does he say? I gave her time to repent. Romans 2.4. What should God's kindness do? If God's giving her time, if God's giving you time to repent, what should that lead you to do? Romans 2.4, do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Why is God not executing immediate judgment? Why is God being kind? Why is God giving you time? Not so you can continue in the sin, but so you can repent. But she refuses. She refuses. She refuses to repent. So what's Jesus going to do? Verse 22, I will throw her onto a sickbed. Now, Jesus comes and assumes the role of a judge. This sounds a little strange to us. I'm going to throw her on a sickbed. What in the world does this mean? Well, what do we think of as the sickbed? What does that sound like to you? I'm going to inflict her with some type of... uh, an illness or disease that's gonna make her bedridden. Okay, but there's a metaphor. What else happens on a bed? Adults? What else is happening here? <laughs> Sexual immorality. Okay? So this is ironic. This bed image is the image of sin. She's seducing these believers to engage in defiling the marriage bed, but yet she will suffer on a bed of sickness. During these idol feasts, they would recline on beds to eat at the trade guild festival. So this bed metaphor. Now notice that Jesus still gives time. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent. One of the things that we need to understand, and we'll look at this, in the book of Revelation, Jesus, there's always time to repent. As we get later on in the book of Revelation, the time is over to repent. Okay, What's the time to repent? Now. Are you guaranteed tomorrow? No. Okay. I had a teenager when I was a youth pastor, and he was engaged in, in some immorality. Um, just a crazy, you know, like, typ- I want to say typical teenager stuff, but stuff that typical, unfortunately, typical teenagers do. And, and I pulled him aside one time, and I said, man, I love you. But you've got you've to start living for Christ. And here's what he told me. He says, I'll do that when I get older. He goes, when I get to be your age, I'll do that when I'm older. He's like, right now, I want to have fun. I want to live it up. I'll worry about that when I get older. And I said, man, you may not have a chance to get older. What happens if, I'm not, well, I'm not trying to scare you, bud, but you may walk out of here and get hit by a car and not have time. You've got to repent now. God has given you a window. We, you never know when that window is going to close when God no longer gives you an opportunity to repent. But what does he say? If they repent, there won't be the tribulation, okay? Now, notice why Jesus is going to deal with this woman so severely. Look at verse 23. I will strike her children dead, and all the churches, not just Thyatira, all the churches will know that I am he who does what? Searches. Remember, what's he, flaming eyes? He searches with his flaming eyes of fire the heart and the mind and I will give to each of you according to your works. This is from Jeremiah 17.10 I the Lord, this is the Old Testament I the Lord search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. In other words, what Jesus is saying is listen you can't Hide from my penetrating eyes. I see everything, and I'm giving you an opportunity to repent. If you don't, you will suffer discipline. She will experience greater discipline because she's the seductor, she's the leader, she's the false prophet. Those who follow her will experience tribulation, but not as much as she is. The leaders are always more accountable than the followers, okay? That's what Jesus has against them. But there's some encouragement. There is a word of encouragement. Notice what Jesus says there in verse 24. But to who? The rest of you in Thyatira. Okay, there there are some in the church that weren't fallen for this. There was a small group, a remnant, if you will, that had not been deceived by this false prophetess. To the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who've not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. Now, what are the deep things of Satan? That sounds kind of scary, doesn't it? What are the deep things of Satan? Well, there's a couple of of issues on this. Um, It's very similar to what false prophets would say. I have a word from God. I, I've got something to, like Gnosticism. I, I've got this secret. I've got this deep teaching for you. And once you find out what the deep teaching is, that the person's teaching, is totally in violation of the word of God. It's actually satanic. But a false prophet can sound slick, can't they? I've got the secret. I've got the anointing. And so God has revealed to me directly this new teaching. You don't want to. You don't want to <coughs> argue with God, do you? This is directly from Him, because I'm the anointed prophet. And then what comes out of their mouth is totally in opposition to the Bible. Another thing that's really that some commentators think, which is really really weird, some, some commentators think that the the um, deep things of Satan was this idea that if you're really going to fight Satan if you're really going to you know, combat the devil and you want to help others, it would be v- very beneficial for you to engage in the gross sin so that you could relate to the temptations of others and know how to fight the enemy. Okay, So it would be like this. Man, I know my friends all around me are struggling with sexual immorality and I want to help them. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go engage in it so I know what it's like so I can come back and tell them, this is what it's like, you don't want to do it. Now, is that, the, is that the epitome of stupid? Okay. Isn't that what is? That's what Jezebel's doing there, okay? all right. So what does Jesus say they're to do? This group that hasn't given in to the false teaching, what are they to do? Look, look at your Bibles, verse 25. My Bible, the ESV says only what? Hold fast. Does anybody have something different besides hold fast? Hold on, hold fast to what you have until I come. Now think about that word hold fast or hold on. What does it mean to hold on? Hold fast. Grab onto. What does that, what does that image convey in your mind? Gr- grab onto it for dear life and don't let go. You, you've got to grab on. What are they to grab on to? The exact opposite of what Jezebel is leading them to do. Jesus is saying, listen, there's a remnant of you. There's a small group of you. Hold fast remain true to the authentic and orthodox gospel hold fast to the word don't compromise on the word hold fast to it be doctrinally sound hold on to the truth don't give in to the false teaching okay remember let me just i'm going we're going to go over this you're going to hear me say this every single time almost we talk about revelation especially next fall when we start this Okay, so here's the church, or here's Christians. Okay, you've got two sources of opposition or oppression or pressure that comes against the church. You've got outside persecution, and you've got inside false teaching. All throughout the book of Revelation, these two things are at play. It just depends on what situation it's in. It's either the culture's coming at you from the outside or there's false teachers on the inside. And I will submit to you, it's easier to see the pressure coming from the outside than it is to see the stuff on the inside. And what's happening to Thyatira is there's pressure coming on the inside. And Jesus says, hold fast. Hold fast to the truth. Don't tolerate. Be intolerant of a Jezebel. If somebody in the church is teaching false teachings, if somebody's leading somebody astray, if somebody's leading people into especially sexual immorality, you cannot put up with them. You've got to deal with them. Okay? Now, what's the promise? We always have this promise to the overcomer, to the one who conquers, to the one who overcomes. Remember, that's the Greek word nikeo. We get the word Nike from it to the one who nikes, to the one who overcomes. Notice what he says there in verse 26. To the one who conquers and, there's an addition here, keeps my works until the end. He adds that little statement there. It's not just the one who conquers, but he adds, to the one who keeps my works until the end. In other words, to the one who holds true to the true gospel to the end, doesn't get seduced by idolatry to that person, to the one who holds fast to the end, I will give, verse 26, authority over the nations. Authority over the nations. Who ultimately has authority over the nations? Jesus In Psalm chapter 2, Psalm 2 is what we call a messianic psalm. It's it's a prophecy about Jesus. Psalm 2, verses 6 through 9. As for me, I've set my king in Zion, my holy hill. That's God setting Jesus as king. I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of your earth your possession, you shall break them with the rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. Okay. How does Jesus introduce himself to the church of Thyatira? The Son of God who rules. Now it's interesting here. Verse 27: He will rule them with the rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, he will rule them. Interesting word there in the Greek, the word rule really means to shepherd. The chief shepherd will not rule with a gentle wooden staff, but an iron rod. Now, notice he talks about earthen pots, broken in pieces. What's the significance of the broken clay pots, besides just a reference to Psalm chapter 2? This would be emphatic for the large pottery guild in Thyatira as well. Remember, this is a blue-collar town. And then, verse 28, I will give him the morning star. Now, what's the morning star? Or maybe you'll ask it a better. Who is the morning star? Numbers 24, 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. A star, all right, so a star is going to rise out of Jacob. What's this, a meta, what's Jacob? What's that a representative of? Israel, okay. A scepter, what's a scepter? Something you rule with. So this is a prophecy of Jesus coming from the tribe of Judah or coming as the true Israelite to be the star that's going to shine. And then in Revelation twenty two sixteen, 16, at the end of the book of Revelation, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. So when Jesus promises that we will receive the morning star, what Jesus is basically promises is Himself. You, if you endure to the end, when you get to heaven, your reward is me. Now, I read this book by John Piper, God is the Gospel, about 10 years ago. In the first few pages, he had this quote, which has stuck with me ever since. Let me me read to you this quote. John Piper says, if you could have heaven... With no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauty you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ was not there? And his point was so many people probably would. Because what do they want? They want, the bl- yeah, they want the blessings but not Christ himself. Now, yeah, without Christ, you're still like, yeah. So one of the things that you hear people say today is it really doesn't matter what you believe as long as you love Jesus. Hear anybody here say that? It doesn't really matter what you believe. Let's just all love Jesus. Does it matter what you believe? Will it affect how you live? Okay? If somebody said to me, Doctrine divides and you talk too much about theology, let's just love Jesus. The first question, if somebody said, It doesn't matter what you believe, let's just love Jesus, what would be the first question you'd ask them? What Jesus are you talking about? The Jesus of Mormonism? The Jesus of Islam? What Jesus are you talking about? Well, you know, you said don't get into theology. When you, when you make a statement, let's just love Jesus, you're making a theological statement. When you say, I don't believe in theology, you're making a theological statement. What are you saying? You're making a statement about theology that you don't believe in. Okay. So the question is, how can you become a discerning Christian? If a Jezebel shows up in your life, through whatever channel that happens to be, or whatever, any type of false teaching, how do you stay solidly grounded in the Word? How do you do that? You have to read the Word yourself. Don't take my Word for it. Go home and read this Word for yourself. Immerse yourself in this Word. Memorize this Word. Don't be one who's seduced. I think, I personally think, and I'm not sure who's watching this, so I'm not going to mention names, but I will just say this as Pastor of Emmanuel, I've seen kids grow up in this church, go through Team Kid, go through Youth Group, go through college ministry at NJC, and then make some really bad life decisions that act like they have no clue about what the Bible says. I have a fear that a lot of Christian young people are getting seduced by the world. And why? Because it's so hard to go against the stream. You don't want to be labeled a bigot. You don't want to be labeled narrow-minded. You don't want to be seen as weird. So either you keep your mouth shut and don't say anything, or you just adopt it. And here's the thing, guys. As we go through the book of Revelation, there's no middle ground. Jesus will not let you ride the fence. He just won't. You're either going to compromise or you're going to stand up for the truth. You're going to hold fast the gospel. You're going to compromise. So how do you not compromise? You immerse yourself in the Word so that you know it so well, that your, your spiritual antennae are up so that you can discern truth from error. Okay? Any questions on Thyatira before we move to Sardis? Okay. Well, we'll move into chapter 3 now, and let's move into Sardis. Man, we may get done a little early tonight, but we'll see. We'll see. I may stretch out Sardis. Okay. Okay. Before we look at Sardis, I want you to picture in your mind a church. First church anywhere USA. Okay? Doesn't matter the denomination. Doesn't matter the label. Just think about an evangelical church. 30 years ago, this church was a small, struggling band of faithful believers. And their pra- their pastor wasn't flashy. He just preached the gospel. They had prayer meeting. Um, they weren't concerned with the latest and greatest fads of the evangelical world. They just we're going to love people we're going to preach god's word we're going to we're going to be the church we're going to be a light to our community well about 10 years ago a new pastor comes in and he begins to make some changes and he begins to say you know what i don't know if we should really preach the bible per se What I'd like to do is give more motivational talks because that's what people, that's really going to get people in if I begin to give more motivational speeches. Uh, We can talk about all different type of topics. I'll I'll tell you happy stories about my life. It can be a group therapy session, um, messages about self-esteem. Prayer used to be a crucial part of the church, but they don't pray anymore. Uh, There's no prayer meeting. Um, And after a while, uh, the church... Begins to get very, very big. They, they tend to attract a lot of people. They become the largest church in town. 30 years ago, they were the small, struggling band of believers, but now they're the largest church in town. They're a megachurch. Million-dollar budget, great buildings, great programs. They're bursting at the seams. But the pastor never talks about sin. He never talks about the cross. He doesn't want to offend anybody. He doesn't really talk about prayer much. Because he wants the people to keep coming. And so he runs the church more like a CEO than a pastor. And they make decisions based upon popularity. And a lot of times it doesn't matter who is a godly leader or not. They put people into leadership based upon popularity. And everybody's happy. It's the largest church in town. He's the most charismatic pastor in town. They got the best praise team in town. They got the best children's ministry in town. They've got it all. And to the outside world, they look like the greatest church since life spread. But something deeply wrong is going on under the surface. They have a great reputation. This is the church. But when you scratch under the surface, they have a reputation reputation of being this great church but actually under the surface what's wrong they're not being faithful to who they used to be that's the church in sardis okay let's talk about sardis because sardis is different than any other church based upon the town so let's read revelation 3 1 through 6 and again it's not necessarily the size of the church i have no i have nothing against sizes of churches doesn't matter whether you're a megachurch. doesn't matter if you're a church of 15. If you've abandoned preaching the gospel, if you've abandoned talking about repentance and faith, if you've abandoned talking about the blood of Christ, if you've abandoned prayer, the power of the Holy Spirit, if you've abandoned all those things for popularity, you have compromised on what it means to be a true church. Okay? So let's find out about the church in Sardis. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And to the angel in the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains. It is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, All right, the introductory address to Sardis. What does history teach us about Sardis? It was the one church out of the seven churches that experienced no outside pressure or persecution from the Jews, from the Roman government. There was no evidence of martyrdom. This was not the hotbed of imperial rule. In all intents and purposes, this was a church that did not have a hostile culture. It was a model of inoffensive, dead Christianity. Okay? Now, they didn't have to fight false teachers, they didn't have to fight Roman occupation and persecution, they didn't have to fight these um, antagonistic Jews. It was pretty much a church that the culture said, hey, you know what? We're okay with the church being here. Probably the closest to the American church. Sardis thrives in a culture where churches are okay as long as you're not offensive. Now, Sardis was once a glorious and mighty city. It was the oldest city in Asia Minor. But... In A.D. 17, it was destroyed by an earthquake, and then it was rebuilt. But when they rebuilt the city of Sardis, it never regained that grandeur and glory it did in the past. In other words, the town itself was a relic of the glory days of the past, and now the church was a symbol of the town. The church was a relic of the past. The church was living off the laurels of yesterday, but in effect, the church is dead. It's lifeless. It's compromising. Okay? This was the wealthiest of all the cities. Gold and silver were first discovered in Sardis. It was the town to first mint coins. People lived luxurious. I would say this. It was a fat cat city with a fat cat church. Okay? It was a wealthy, well to do, prominent city where people just kind of engaged in materialism. This is important. The chief trade, the chief industry in Sardis was wool manufacturing. We'll get to that later. That's very, very important. Wool man just stop. What is wool manufa- when you think of wool manufacturing, what do you think of? Sheep. What else do you think of? What what do you make out of wool? Garments. garments what kind of garments usually? Coats. Okay. Blankets. Blankets, coats, robes. Okay. Think think about that. Okay. All right. How does Christ appear to the church in Sardis? What's what's the aspect of Christ's appearance? He says um, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Okay. Again, this is symbolic language that we dealt with earlier that basically means that Jesus holds the churches. Jesus holds the church in His hands. Seven, Why is it seven spirits of God and seven? Why is it seven spirits of God and seven stars? Okay? So this is not like there's seven holy spirits. Okay, Seven is a number of completion or perfection, okay? So the stars represent the church, right? And the seven spirits represent the Holy Spirit. So question, is the church in Sardis showing evidence that they're being empowered and emboldened and enlivened by the Holy Spirit? What does Jesus say about them? You're dead. So here's the issue. In the context of a dead and lifeless church, the Holy Spirit is the only one who can blow new life into these dead, dry bones. This church is in need of the invigorating Spirit to breathe new life into this nominal church. They need the Holy Spirit back in the church. And Jesus also holds the seven stars. So here's the thing, guys. We can be, let's just make this a manual, we can be the best church in town with the greatest music and the greatest programs and the greatest buildings, and we can have all these things and still lack the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of things we can do in our own power as a church. What's the one thing we can't do? What the Holy Spirit can do. Now listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 3, 20-21. Now to him who's able to do far more, he is able to do, not we are able to do, he is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. Some translations say imagine, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. That's what we need. Every, the, the church in Sardis and every church needs the power of the Holy Spirit. Now I'm going to tell you guys a story about Charles Spurgeon one of my favorite preachers. Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, as he would get up to preach, there were 15 steps that led up to the pulpit. Okay, that's a lot of steps. And every time he'd get up to preach, before he'd preach, as he'd walk each step, each step he would would mutter under his breath, I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. I believe in... So 15 times he said that. So when he got up to preach... I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. He, he was a powerful preacher. And so I guess the desperate cry for us is, not that we mount 15 steps up to preach, but the question is, are we that desperate for the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in our church? Because this is a church that needs revival. What's revival? You got to be vived first. Okay, you got to be alive first. Revival means you were alive at one time and you need to be revived, okay? So no church is going to be truly fruitful unless the Holy Spirit grants them supernatural power. And that often comes through the desperate praying of the people for that power, okay? So what's the spiritual evaluation of this church? What does Jesus say about them? He says, you have a reputation You have a name. You've got this great reputation. Everybody on the outside thinks you're an alive church. This is the popular church. This is a church that everybody wants to come to. You've got this great reputation. You've got a great budget. You've got great buildings. You've got quality programs for all ages. You've got all this great stuff. You've got a great reputation. But you are what? Dead. You're dead. What Jesus is saying is this, you're not giving off life. You're not being salt and light. You're not burning brightly as a lampstand. What you're doing, church, is you're blending into the world around you and you're becoming a graveyard of spirituality. Now, why does Jesus, this is where this is so fun studying the books of Revelation, the book of Revelation, these seven churches, this is why it's so fun. Why does Jesus say you're dead to Sardis? Here's why. Another impressive feature of Sardis is what was called a necropolis. Necros is the Greek word for dead. A necropolis is a cemetery. There was a cemetery of a thousand hills, as it was nicknamed, because of the hundreds of burial mounds visible on the skyline some seven miles from Sardis. So think about your town. What's your town known for when you look off in the distance? The big old cemetery. Cemetery on a hill there's a bunch of dead people in tombs on that hill that's where they buried thousands of people on that hill and jesus says just like the biggest thing you look at in your city the necropolis church you're imitating your city you're one big cemetery you're dead there's no more spiritual life what did jesus say about the pharisees in matthew 23 27 Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. You look good on the outside. Church, you're whitewashed. You've got a reputation. Everything looks good to the the unsuspecting human eye. But inside, church, you're dead. There's no life. There's no Holy Spirit power. The cross and the gospel was no longer really offensive. They had made friends with the culture. Now, let me just stop here. This is not in your notes. Is the message of the cross offensive to sinful people? Yes. Is there a temptation not to preach the cross because it's offensive? (coughs) Yes. How's the only way people are going to get saved? Through the cross. So if we don't preach the cross and the gospel, we are not going to see people get saved. But the temptation is if we preach the gospel, we'll offend people, and we don't want to offend people, so let's do everything else we can to not make people feel offended. Now, should we purposely offend people? Like, should I go up to somebody and say, turn or burn? You know, should I just get in somebody's face? You know, I mean, how? I've never said that to anybody. I've never said that to anybody. I mean, you can, there's jerk Christians that can be purposely offensive by how they act. Okay. Are we to be offensive in our behavior, in our character? No. Is the message we preach offensive? Yes. Can we change the message? No. Can we share it in ways that are helpful and winsome? Yes. But here's the issue. This fat cat church was basically saying, you know what? We're in a town. There's no persecution. We're blowing and going. People are coming. We have all these things going on. Man, if we start to talk about repentance and we start talking about the cross and we start talking about God's judgment against sin we may make some people upset. And if we start making people upset, we might start losing people. And if we start losing people, we may not be the most popular church in town. And if we start losing people and we're not the most popular church in town, the culture's not going to like us. So we better just kind of, well, we'll use Christianese and we'll still act like a church, but for the most part, we'll just give feel-good messages that make people feel happy. They had given in to what I call pragmatism. Or nominalism. Okay, there's two things. Nominalism. What's nominalism? Does anybody know what the word nominalism is? It means in name only. Like you're a Christian in name only. But I think that the, one of the reasons was they gave in to pragmatism. Do you guys know what pragmatism means? If I say, be pragmatic. does that? Does, all right. Pragmatism basically says this. Whatever works, pragmatic comes from the word works, whatever works, we will do it because it gets results. Whether it glorifies God, whether it's true to Scripture, we're not so concerned with that. We're concerned with what works to keep getting a crowd. So we'll try all these things that quote unquote work. So the question is, should a church be driven by pragmatism or by the glory of God? The glory of God. Now, will God always 100% bless a church with numerical growth if they're faithful to Him? No. Does God sometimes do that? Yes. So do we have any control over how God grows His church? No. But we do have control about how we're going to do ministry. Are we going to do ministry in faithfulness to the Scriptures or are we going to do it based upon pragmatism? Okay, so Jesus says, listen, you guys are the happening church in town. You guys are the the most popular thing going. Everybody's coming to you. But look up at the hillside. Just like the necropolis, like the graveyard, that's what you are right now. So what are the words of rebuke that Jesus has for this church? He gives them a rebuke. Five sharp, quick, abrupt commands, like five things here. Okay, so let's look at these five things that he says. Verse 2, wake up, be alert, watch, get out of your apathy. What's apathy when you're apathetic? Yeah, basically you're not watchful, you don't really care, you just kind of like go with the flow. Okay. So wake up, be alert, that's number one. Number two strengthen what remains and is about to die. Okay, strengthen what's about to, to die. There is, there is a remnant. There is some vestiges of passion. There are some people there that really have the desire, corporately, church, family. You've got you to strengthen that. You've you got a good foundation. Just go back to that foundation and strengthen it. And what does Jesus say? I have not found your works complete, in the sight of my God. I've not found your works complete. Hmm. The wording here in the original language means that Jesus made a thorough and scrutinizing investigation of the deeds of the church and they came up short. Your works are not complete. Now, notice the contrast jesus says i've done a thorough and i've i've looked over your church think about think about jesus for a moment here that scares me to death to have jesus say i've done a thorough and scrutinizing investigation of your church and i'm coming to you with the checklist whoa <laughs> i mean obviously thankful for grace But Jesus knows what's going on. What's the contrast? Okay, what's the contrast? Jesus knows what's going on in this church. The contrast is, in the eyes of Jesus, what's not right? You're not right. But in the eyes of the community, well, they had a reputation. They had a name. They're alive. They were pleasing to the eyes of men, yet they were incomplete in the sight of God. So the question is, what's more important? The praise and adoration and approval of men? Or the praise and adoration and approval of God. As a church, who are you trying to, who are you trying to impress? People? Or are you trying to worship God? Okay? You're trying to make a name for yourself, or are you trying to make a name for God? So number one, be alert. Number two, strengthen. Okay, number three. Remember. Verse 3, remember then what you've received and heard. Remember it. What had they heard? The gospel. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The the trustworthiness of of scriptures. You guys got to go back and remember the foundation that laid this church. It's not on fads. It's not on what the world likes. Go back and remember the gospel. Go back and remember the truth. Go back and remember 30 years ago. When you were a small struggling band of believers and you you were desperate for God and you prayed and you studied the word and your pastor was faithful to the word, remember that. And then, what does he say? Not just remember it. Number four, keep it. Keep it. Hold fast to it. Don't, once you remember it, don't compromise it. Don't don't flirt with capitulating to the culture. Keep it. And then what he says here is you guys need to repent. Repent. Repent of what? Repent of what? Well, repent of being so much like the culture that you've lost your witness. Repent of allowing the world around you to squeeze you into its mold. Repent of being a dead church. Now, twice Jesus uses the term, wake up. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. Wake up. Wake up. up. Be watchful. Be alert. I'm coming like a thief. So the question is, why would this imagery of watching, wake up, thief, why is this imagery, why is he using this imagery over and over again? Church, wake up. Church, be alert. Church, keep on guard. I'm coming like a thief. Why did that affect Sardis? There was another thing in Sardis besides the cemetery that was seven miles away there was an acropolis a tower it was on a moat i'm going to read this so i make sure i get i'm going to read my notes okay so it was situated at the base of the pactolus river which served as a moat on three sides of this acropolis were rock walls that were almost perpendicular that rose 1500 feet this made the fortress almost impregnable it was an impenetrable fortress. Okay, so three sides, right? On the fourth side, there was no rocky wall. So the soldiers had to keep vigilant watch for approaching enemies that could scale the wall and capture the city. Yet the people of Sardis were arrogant and overconfident that nothing can stop them, that they were invincible. Here's what happened. Okay, so you understand the situation here? You've got this 1,500-foot, structure three rock walls unscalable impregnable but the fourth side is not so you had to have soldiers out there keeping watch keeping guard making sure nobody would sneak in and overtake the city and what had happened well, we're impregnable we're invincible nobody's going to come to our city so what did the guards begin to do sleep on the job it's never happened before Never going to happen. Well, in 549 B.C., the Persian king Cyrus captured the city by a surprise attack when a soldier sneaked into the area when the Sardin guards were not watching. The attack was like a thief in the night, and the city was overtaken. In 218 B.C., the city was captured again, twice, twice. So here's the thing about Sardis that these people would know. It was part of their life as Sardines or Sardinians. I don't know what you got. Sardines? Sardines. (laughs) Sardines. As Sardines to understand the history of their city and the importance of keeping watch for invading nations that would secretly sneak in and overtake the city. Why does Jesus say to them, keep watch? They understood what that meant as a city. Hmm. I know what you're talking about, Jesus. Our city's been overtaken twice because we didn't keep watch. We thought we were invincible. And how do churches often happen? We're invincible. We're we're the greatest church. We have the greatest programs. Everything's going great. There's no issues here. Um, You know, we're the the most happening thing. And Jesus says, listen, you're dead. If you don't wake up, if you don't repent, I'm going to come like a thief in the night, and I will come against you and you won't know what that hour is. Now, I don't think this is necessarily talking about um, the second coming. Jesus is referred to as a thief in the night. I think this is talking more about Jesus coming to that particular church and bringing discipline upon them if they don't repent. Okay? Now, let's talk about the words of encouragement and exhortation. Verse 4, Yeah, you still have a few names. Notice how it's a few. Back and Thyatira, what, what, there's always a remnant. There's always a small group. There's always that group of faithful people they are like, you know what, this ain't right, but we're going to wait it out because this is our church and we want to be faithful. There, there's a remnant. You still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Okay. They will what? They haven't soiled their garments. They will walk with me in white. They're going to wear white garments. What's the importance of white garments for Sardis? Since Sardis, remember I said, was a wool manufacturing city, this imagery was very important to the church. And their culture, okay, soiled garments, just in that culture, soiled garments, those with soiled garments could be removed from the public list of citizens in Sardis. So if you walk down the street in dirty clothes, Officials come up to you and say, if you don't go go get your clothes clean, I'm going to take you off the city rolls. And in the pagan religions, it was forbidden to approach the gods in soiled or stained clothes. Even when you went to these different Greek gods and goddesses, you had to have white clothes on. Okay? What Jesus is saying is, because you are wearing white and you've not sold your clothes, there's a remnant in the church that's remained faithful. You haven't compromised with the culture. You haven't bought into this whole looking like you're alive but being dead thing. They're going to walk with me because they are worthy. They're worthy. Now, let's talk about worthiness here for a moment. Are we worthy in and of ourselves? Okay, what does Isaiah 64, 6 say about us and about clothing? We've all become like one who's unclean. All of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. I've mentioned this verse many times on Sunday mornings, but I've never told on Sunday mornings what it really means because there's little kids in there. But I think I can tell you tonight what the Hebrew means because there's adults. When it talks about a polluted garment there, I'll give you the Hebrew. Dirty tampon. That's all I'm going to say. That's what the polluted garment was. Okay? Isaiah 61.10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord... My soul shall exult in my God, for He has clothed clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Okay, here's the issue, guys. We are not worthy in and of ourselves. We'll talk about this Sunday morning. We are not worthy by doing works of the law. Our righteous deeds, the things that we do, do not make us worthy. We have to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ, which makes us righteous. Okay, so we're declared righteous only on account of Christ's righteousness being credited to us, and He clothes us with those white garments. Okay, Revelation fourteen four through five. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They've been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits of God in the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they're blameless. They've not defiled themselves. Think about this for a moment. What happened when you have soiled clothing? All right, let me just ask you a question. Maybe not so much men, but women. Okay, let me ask the women. If you walk out of your house with a big stain on your clothing, are you self-conscious about that? What do you want to do? change clothes, okay? You want to be clean. You want to appear. Most women, I would say most men, when you go out in public, what do you want to do? You want to present yourself as put together I look good, my clothes are clean, I smell good. I'm not like pig pen on the peanuts, you know, pig pen with all the, 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 the dirt flying around him. I, I took a bath, I took a shower, I, I got my deodorant. I am sure, you know, nobody's going to sit next to me and, and you know, fall over. I, I want to make sure. I go out the door making sure I look good. Okay. What was Sardis doing? They were so concerned that they looked good to the culture. Here's the ironic thing. It's ironic that the Sardin Christians were concerned with outward parents, making sure they looked good, making sure they were pure, but on the inside they were dead, and they had soiled garments. Okay? Now, what's the promise to the overcomer? And again, the overcomer is the one who endures to the end, the one who ends up going to heaven, Threefold promise this time. So this is, there's three promises here. Sometimes there's one, sometimes there's two. Okay, here's the first one. Verse 5, The one who conquers will be clothed in white garments. Okay. When we look at the book of Revelation, being clothed in white garments is a metaphor for having the righteousness of Christ imputed to you as a gift and that you are a believer. You're a saint. Uh, Revelation 7, 13-14. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are those clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That makes no sense. They've made their clothes white in the blood of the Lamb. What does blood do? It doesn't make you white. Blood is crimson red. It's a metaphor. They have made themselves white in the blood of Christ. Now, it's in the passive voice. They will be clothed. You don't clothe yourself in righteousness. You don't clothe yourselves in white. It's a passive voice. It means God is the one who does it. God is the one who clothes us with the righteousness of Christ. God is the one who imputes that righteousness of Christ to us by faith and counts us as righteous because of what Christ has done. It's a picture of justification by faith alone. We're going to talk about that Sunday morning when we get to Galatians chapter 2 the second promise so number 1 you will have you will be in ultimate purity in heaven with the imputed righteousness of Christ to your account so that you will forever be not guilty before God you'll always be in a permanent state of being accepted righteous pure okay number 2 i will never blot their name out of the book of life this is an emphatic way of saying you will be eternally secure now We'll find out in Revelation that the elect's names are written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world, and God won't blot them out, but it's an emphatic way of saying, no one will snatch you out of my hands. Now, we sing that song, um, My name is written on his hands. We sing that, um, is that the song we sang um, Sunday? Yeah, My name is written on his hands. Or is that the power the power of the cross? One of those songs talks about that. Isaiah 49, 16, behold, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. Okay, now think about the imagery here. If God engraves you on the palm of his hands, that's almost like a tattoo. If God engraves you on the palm of his hands in a tattoo, what's a tattoo? Is a tattoo permanent? For the most part nowadays, I mean, there's ways you can get rid of it. What's the significance of God engraving us in the palm of his hand? It shows that we're permanently His. We're in His hand. We will never be let go. Okay. Revelation 13, 8. Whoops. Did we skip Revelation 13, 8? Is Revelation 13, 8 down on your. It just talks about our name being written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. Okay. Romans 8, 1. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So you, you have white robes. You'll, you'll be in Christ's possession forever. You'll never be blotted out of the book of life. And then number three, this is an interesting thing, What Jesus is going to do here. I will confess his name before my father and before his, his angels. Jesus will confess our names before the courts of heaven. Um, it's a public confession that Jesus makes. This reminds me of some of the things he said in the gospels. In Matthew ten thirty two 32-33, Jesus says, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who's in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who's in heaven. So here's the thing for the church in Sardis. What's the most important thing? Acceptance by the world around us? Being popular and exciting and the place to be as a church? Or having Jesus confess your name as entrance into heaven? Okay. So here's the question for Sardis. Are they alive? They have a reputation of being alive, but they're dead. So what is a church to be? What does Jesus say in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew five thirteen through 16 You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to to your Father who is in heaven. Both of these churches, Thyatira and Sardis, they had different issues, but it all came down to compromise. Are you going to hold fast to the gospel or are you going to compromise? Any questions on these two churches or any observations or things you guys want to add or subtract from the teaching tonight? All right. Well, oh, go ahead. Churches on TV would yeah, some of these churches on TV. I hate. to, Yeah, I don't. I don't. I don't particularly like calling out particular names of churches or particular teachers unless you come ask me, because I could go on all day. I think it's easier to. I think it's easier to teach. Here's what I found a long time ago. I used to, early in my ministry, try to call these people out because I felt like if I just call these people out, I don't do that as much now because I feel like if I just teach people the Bible, then if people are more, you know, focused on the Bible, then they'll be able to, my job is to help you to be able to do it on your own. Now, if somebody comes to me and says, what do you think about this certain teacher? You know, I'll I'll give you my opinion or what I know about him or what I've researched. Um, Sometimes I have no, no clue who they are. There's so many people out there because of the internet. And worldwide, people out of all different all parts of the world. And so you got to be real careful now, um, who you who you get. Um, yeah, I know. And, and yeah, yeah. And it doesn't just have to be churches on TV, Jerry. It could be our church. It could be any church. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, thankfully, I pray that we're not like that. So. All right. Anything else? All right. I'll turn off Facebook, and we'll go ahead and pray. Father, thank you for this time that we have together. And Lord, we do want to be a church. Lord, I don't want to be a church that has a reputation of being alive, but it's dead. Lord, I want there to be life. Holy Spirit, we need you. We need your grace. We need your mercy. We need your power. Lord, we need to be revived. So Lord, all of us need that. And so, Father, help us to be faithful. Help us to be a life-giving church, a church that is salt, a church that is light, a church that does... Remain faithful to preaching the gospel, and Lord, um, we know that you're in control of the results. You bring the increase. You bring the harvest. We just need to be faithful. So Lord, help us focus most of all on being faithful, and then you will you will give us fruit according to your plan. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.